Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 3, verses 7 through 20. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then should we do? In reply, he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod, the ruler who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. The Gospel of the Lord. Author of life, we thank you for these words, and we ask that your spirit would be upon us to transform us in heart and mind and soul. Amen. There's a small debate that can happen at this time of year as churches decorate for Advent. The question is whether to use purple candles and pyramids or whether to use blue. Purple is the more traditional color, but according to Discipleship Ministries, the color blue has been gaining more acceptance. From what I gather, the answer that a church chooses depends on whether Advent is viewed as a season of penance, purple, or of hope, blue. While there are many arguments either way, I think today's reading puts the question to rest. There's no way to read John the Baptist and not see a message of repentance. I'm not saying that there isn't hope in Advent, but I am saying that hope is a product of repentance. John, prophet of the Most High, does not hold back in his message. 
To the people who come to be baptized, he is not gentle. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now keep in mind, these are the people that are wanting to be holy. These are the people who have wandered out into the wilderness to find the prophet and hear his words. And this is the greeting they receive. Imagine the outrage if a pastor spoke like this in today's world. And then he goes on. In essence, he says to them, do you think you're safe because you're descended from Abraham? God can lift up new children from the stones. Having the name is not enough to save you. God is pointing his ax at the roots of every tree that does not bear good fruit. In other words, if you aren't producing the fruits of the Spirit, it doesn't matter how saved you think you are, God is going to cut you down, and he will toss you into the fire. I don't imagine that many of us associate Advent with hellfire. And some modern commenters try to soften what John says here. They try to say that the fire of which John speaks is merely a refining fire. But we know that John is a fan of Isaiah. Just before the words we heard today, John had quoted the ancient prophet. So if we look again to Isaiah, we see these words. For the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to pay back his anger and fury, and his rebuke in flames of fire. For by fire the Lord will execute judgment, and by his sword on all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. A few verses later, the book of Isaiah ends, and they shall go out and look at the dead bodies of the people who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So let us be clear, when John speaks of the wrath to come, there is no ambiguity. When he speaks of one who will baptize with the spirit and fire, he is presenting us with a choice. We can do what is right in the sight of the Lord and receive the blessing of the Spirit. Or we rebel against God and we shall be the chaff in the unquenchable fire. So what are the teachings of John here? What does it mean to do what is right in the sight of the Lord? Whoever has more food and clothing than they need must share them with those who are without. No matter how you make your living, you should never profit at the expense of another. If you have power, do not abuse it to make yourself wealthy. And quite frankly, John's teachings are less demanding than Christ, who proclaims woe to the rich and instructs his followers to love those who hate them most and to gladly give up their possessions if someone else takes them. John was not afraid to tell people how their faith should affect their daily lives because the scriptures don't ever limit themselves to only spiritual matters. The word of the Lord God is for every single aspect of creation, and as such, it must influence every aspect of our lives. Every part of the Bible is a story of people's faith and their lives intersecting. The Pentateuch is about the geopolitics of the ancient Near East. It's the story of nomadic people and refugees trying to navigate the dangerous space in between global superpowers. 
It's about trying to establish rules that ensure the survival of their people and of their commitment to God in the face of overwhelming odds. The prophet's whole purpose is to confront tyrants and corruption with the word. The apocalyptic texts use symbolism to engage with the political struggles of the people. They use codes and allegory to speak the truth in societies that would kill them for openly speaking the word of God. The teachings of Christ are centered on the establishment of the kingdom of God, which stands in contrast to the powers and principalities of this world. Paul often found himself writing from the inside of prison cells because he was a disruptor of the social order. John lost his head to Herod for what he said. Christ was crucified by the Roman Empire. The prophets time and again found themselves pursued by those who wished to kill them. And this courageous intersection of spirituality and practice is not contained to the scriptures. Even in popular theology, we see examples of God speaking against the evils of the world. The hymn, O Holy Night, was first written in 1847 by Placide Capot and then set to music by Adolf Adams. The song was widely embraced by the French church until Capot joined the socialist movement and church leaders realized that Adams was Jewish. Yet, even as the church tried to quash the song, it continued to find hold in people's hearts. In particular, it took hold of an American named John Sullivan Dwight. Dwight was an abolitionist who was struck by the words of the third verse. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Change shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppressions shall cease. And of course, the words of this hymn should have been politically relevant for their day. It's a song that proclaims the birth of one who would open scripture and declare that God had sent him to proclaim release to the captives and to let the oppressed go free. At the heart of the gospel is a moral force that declares God's plans for reconciliation and justice will triumph over the wickedness of this world. I do not know when it happened, but at some point, the great deceiver convinced well-meaning Christians that this world-changing force was not essential to the gospel. At some point, as a church, we decided to accept that our spiritual life could be divorced from the decisions that we make in our political life. The loss of this moral force has led to the stagnation of the church. It is because we do not live according to the spirit that we are facing institutional death. By turning our backs on the plight of the suffering, we have turned our backs on Christ. Shane Claiborne, who comes from an evangelical Christian background and is one of the leading figures of the new monastic mo movement, spoke to this very issue in an interview he did with Christianity Today in 2010. What he said was, I think there's a lot of things happening right now within the church that should raise flags for us. I think that part of what we've done is we thought in order to stay relevant to a new generation, we've got to have more drums and drama and high-tech entertainment. The truth is, if we lose a generation in the church, it won't be because we didn't entertain them, but because we didn't dare them and challenge them 
to really take Jesus seriously in light of the world we live in. We have a lot to repent for, but perhaps nothing so pressing as the failure to take Jesus seriously in light of the world we live in. Therefore, we must repent of the moral cowardice that has convinced us that politics and religion shouldn't mix. It's this failing that tells us to be silent when we see images of children being tear gassed or ripped from their parents' arms, that tells us to be silent in the face of neo-Nazis and neo-Confederates for the sake of civility. It's this attitude that killed Heather Heyer in Charlottesville. It is this same attitude that tells us to offer thoughts and prayers for the continual murder of our children in their classrooms, but not to actually change our behavior at all. So we live in a world where there was a classroom shooting on average of every eight days this year. It's the work of the enemy that convinces us that it is okay that our healthcare system serves the bottom line of private companies rather than patients. And so we live in a world where people die of easily treated diseases for lack of the money to pay artificially inflated costs. It's the work of the enemy that allows us to blindly accept capitalist indoctrination that people are only worth the value of their economic productivity. And so we live in a world where the richest nation on earth also has people with no place to call home and no food to eat. Advent is a season of repentance. Today's message from John is the quintessential passage of the season. Flee from the wrath to come. But there is hope behind those words. There is the hope that we can bear good fruit. The axe has not yet fallen. There is still time. The world is a mess. We have made mistakes. But it is not too late to change for the better. It's not too late to regain the moral force that the church has lost. The one who is coming will baptize with the spirit and fire, and it is in our power to decide which one we receive. Amen. <laughs>